Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the show. This one featuring Ed Balls star of Strictly Come Dancing and obviously a, a distinguished political career in his own right. Such an incredible figure, Ed Balls. One of the most defining characters of the, of the post-Blair Brown Labour years. A, a, a significant figure in that new Labour story as well, obviously. He's a very close uh, lieutenant to, to, to Gordon Brown, a deep economic and political thinker in his own right. And such a, such a divisive individual. Um, often, I think, unfairly. But nevertheless, someone that I've been desperate to interview for a long time and someone who absolutely did not disappoint. Um, now, at risk of repeating myself sometimes, but every one of these shows I enjoy for different reasons. And I think every guest I've had on has been fantastic. Ed was fantastic in a way that perhaps I didn't expect. Um, he was just absolutely superb and more... More revealing than I expected, and more personal. Not personable, uh, I, I knew he would be that. But it was a far more personal interview than I expected, and I just think, um, at a time when politics has become so polarised, uh, Ed, who himself at times has been a polarising figure, and I think a lot of the time wrongly, um, reveals a, a reflective side that I think, sadly, some people might presume they might not have seen. I didn't necessarily expect him to um, reveal that in this interview, um, but I knew it was there, and it was uh, a privilege to spend uh, an hour or so in his company. He's funny, he's thoughtful, he's a man of exceptional depth. And, um, well, the show ended. Sadly, because this is audio, uh, the, the visual, um, you'll have to sort of go to Twitter to see, but um, there was a kind of impromptu, strictly end to the show, um, where he uh, lifted me up, and um, in so many ways... <laughs> But it was a, an experience, and um, it was a pleasure. So, do enjoy the wonderful Ed Balls. Hello, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. Hello. Nice to see so many of you here, uh, as always. Uh, give me a cheer if this is your first time. Yeah. You don't sound too happy about it. <laughs> You're not here against your will. Uh, give me a cheer if this is your... Hang on. Did I say first time? Okay, give me a cheer if you've been here before. Far happier, you see. If you come more often, you do cheer up. So it's uh, proved positive in that poll just there. Well, welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a, a wonderful guest for you tonight. And obviously, it's been a, a phenomenal month in politics. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn uh, this week has set a, an ambitious target. He said he wants half of all Labour MPs to be women after the next general election. Which means by 2020, Labour could have five female MPs. <laughs> always smokes the Blairites out, that does. Uh, welcome to the show. Um, the big story of the month, obviously, is UKIP and the fact that it turns out Nigel Farage was the sensible one. <laughs> Which is just the most incredible revelation in British politics. He went, Diane James lasted 18 days. She didn't even manage it to the end of her third week. I've had yogurts that have lasted longer than that. <laughs> 
And um, a lot of MPs get abused, and this is something I might talk to Ed about. A lot of MPs get, uh, get abused online. And there was one particular guy who was trolling a lot of uh, MPs. He called uh, Daniel Kaczynski, the stupidest MP in Parliament. Uh, he called Neil Coyle, a Labour MP, a pathetic waste of space. And he called Ian Austin, another Labour MP, a balloon-headed halfwit. Uh, now, police officers track this account back to a guy called Greg Taylor, and his job is the Mayor of London's Principal Government Relations Officer. <laughs> which is just an incredible line of work to be in. And I've got part of his job description here. It's to develop and establish an effective relationship with MPs, <laughs> setting the highest standard in upholding integrity and ethical behaviour. <laughs> what, what, what's he like to work for? Work with? Yeah, all right, Sadiq, I'll be with you in a minute. I've just got to send this tweet calling John McDonnell a tosser. <laughs> Weird behaviour from, uh, from, from that chap. Um, there's also been a, a, a wonderful survey. I'll tell you what, before we do this, I'll just take a, uh, an opinion poll on which parties people support. So give me a cheer if you're a Conservative. Yeah. Okay. Labour. Yeah. <laughs> Liberal Democrat. Yeah. Oh, welcome. Uh, UKIP. That's disappointing, given the findings of that survey, I'll be honest with you. Uh, SNP? A couple? Uh, Green? Okay. Any others? No, that's it. Right, wonderful. Because there's been a survey done which uh, relates who you vote for um, with your sex life. (laughs) So we're about to find out where the perverts are. Uh, Now, the first thing, this has been done by YouGov. What they did was poll people about how happy they were with life and then about how happy they were with their sex lives. Uh, the Tories, Tory supporters, are happier overall, and they're happier uh, during sex. They, they come out on top, uh, so to speak. Um, but they are the only group, the Tories, who are less happy when they're having sex than they are in normal life, which is slightly worrying. Uh, good old-fashioned, resentful Tory sex. Bloody hell, Linda, let's get this done and wash the car and shag the wife. Um, Hidden in there, wasn't it? What a, what a lovely little gem for you. Uh, UKIP were the least happy people overall. Um, probably because they don't come to enough comedy nights. Uh, but they were the second happiest with their sex lives. So their, their, their enjoyment of life shot up when they were um, literally in, out, in, out. Uh, now, some of the fantasies that have come out here are, are interesting. The Tories, their one big fantasy is sex with a sports star. So where, are the, where were the Tories in here? Is, is that a fantasy of yours? Uh, on occasion. <laughs> on occasion. Depending on the sport, I suppose. Anna Konnikova, Jessica Ennis, Red Rum. Depends. <laughs> depends what you're watching. Are there any sports stars in particular that... I've got a shout over my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably did before I started talking to you. <laughs> over, good shout. Uh, UKIP, their one big fantasy is using a vibrator or dildo. Uh, presumably because they're constantly told to go fuck themselves. <laughs> now, the Lib Dems. Where are the Lib Dems? <laughs> Gone very quiet. Probably because you've got a ball gag in your mouth, judging by this list. <laughs> because this is incredible. This is, uh, they asked them to list what their fantasies were. This is what Lib Dems like in bed. Bondage. Filming themselves having sex. So, sex with someone of a different ethnicity. Sex with someone transgender, watching someone masturbate, which is effectively what they did during five years in office. <laughs> and a litany of other filth. Now, I thought they only had one supporter left, but what a guy. 
The Labour list, and obviously this will be question number one when Ed comes out. Uh, sex outdoors, sex with a stranger, sex with a TV star, which Ed counts as now, uh, sex with someone else's partner, oral sex spanking, wearing sexy outfits and role play. I know, basically you say it, I'll spray it, they're into everything. What sort of role play do Labour people do? Right, you be a Blairite, I'll be the compliance unit. <laughs> Purge me. Or perhaps the other way around. Uh, absolute uh, unbridled filth. Um, but fascinating. So now you know who the pervert is sitting next to you, so that's nice, isn't it? Uh, obviously the biggest story in the world is Donald Trump, isn't it? Uh, something that I'm sure uh, concerns us all. In the next few weeks we'll find out whether he's President of the United States or not. Uh, I'm sure most people in this room... Oh, is there anyone here that supports Donald Trump? I mean, you're not likely to admit it, I suppose. It didn't really give it the most impartial opening to a poll. Uh, <laughs> not really fair way to open the question in. But I've been horrified, as I'm sure all of you have been horrified, uh, with some of the things that he said. Uh, particularly his comments about women, and particularly the recording that we heard on the coach, uh, where he said he would grab women by their uh, private parts. And uh, what shocked me most wasn't just hearing those awful words. His justification for it, he said... Uh, Look, that was a long time ago. You know, that was ten years ago. Yeah, when you were 60. <laughs> but as an excuse, ten years ago really expires when you were 26. Over the age of 26, saying it was ten years ago doesn't really help. And, and, and another part of his excuse was this. He said, they're just words. They don't reflect who I am. Mate, that is exactly what words do. That is arguably what they're for. That's like saying, ignore my face. It's not what I look like. God's an absolute pillock. And what, what worries me the most, actually, about all that is that Condoleezza Rice and John McCain came out after those comments and said, please, will you pull out of the race? Now, that raised two issues for me. One, where the fuck have they been until now? And secondly, what will everyone else's red line be? What, who are the members of the Republican Party that think, yeah, I'm fine with what he's done so far? What will the next thing be that makes the rest of them get annoyed? Yeah, I was fine with the pussy grabbing, but when he teabagged Barbara Bush, that was our president. <laughs> so I do worry. I worry about the state of the world. Uh, but in the second half, we have a wonderful guest that I'm sure will put our fretting minds uh, at rest. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for now we're going to take a quick break. I'll be back in the second half with my superb guest. As always, I will open the floor up to questions towards the end uh, of the second half, so do have a think about what you'd like to ask Ed Balls. For now, I've been Matt Ford. I'll see you in a bit. Cheers. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Hello, welcome back to the second half. Um, now, uh, every month uh, we have... I think the guests are, are always fantastic here. Sometimes you get people... Hopefully that's not an omen. Uh, sometimes you get people at the start of their careers, sometimes at the end. Sometimes you talk to people who've had a career in politics, might be going back to it, are currently doing different things. Um, that <laughs> Who knows what will happen? But uh, tonight's guest was absolutely the centre of the Labour Party, not just in government in Gordon Brown, but in opposition as well. Uh, and I'm sure many of us in the room were shocked when he lost his seat at the 2010 election. The last few weeks have shown an absolute turnaround in the way that I think the nation perceives our next guest, uh, gone from sort of politician to, to national treasure, um, uh, uh, with a very unique dancing style um, that uh, it's not necessarily for me to criticise. He's an absolute star. He is someone whose brain has been at the heart of the Labour, if that makes sense. There's a lot of mixed metaphors here. But whose intelligence 
and strategy was absolutely at the heart, not just of Gordon Brown's Labour Party, but of New Labour as well. Uh, someone with, with such vast experience. Uh, I've been trying to get him to do the show for ages. I'm delighted that we've finally been able to get him down here. Please give a huge welcome to Ed Balls. Have a seat. Have a seat. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, we would better start with Strictly, really. Because, if you don't mind me saying, you look like you've lost a bit of weight. I know. About a stone, I think, so far. Yvette thinks I need to stay in a few more weeks. I think she thinks there's a few more pounds to go off. So, uh, <laughs> that's the truth. Um, so, I mean, firstly, when they came to you and said, will you do Strictly? I'm presuming they came to you and you didn't ask. Yeah. yeah. Um, because you never know with these things. Uh, did you immediately say yes, or did you have to think it over a bit? No, not at all. Um, I'm a Celebrity came last year, and I said definitely no to I'm a Celebrity. So you got offered the jungle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I said no to that totally, because um, when I was really small, my dad is a scientist, and um, I went into the lab on a Saturday with, with him once, put my hand in a cage, got bitten by a rat. I've had a massive phobia of rats ever since. I'm I think you going to say you've got superpowers. Con- I, think, yeah. <laughs> I think also, also it's a show which is about um, kind of, about the humour comes from people having a hard time. Yeah. And I don't think, I don't think it's um, a fun thing. <laughs> Whereas with, with Strictly, I think I was going to say no and, um, when they asked. And I went home to, to ask a vet because I was sure she would say no. And her immediate reaction was, you've got to say yes. And I said, really? And she said, how can you turn down learning to dance, losing weight <laughs> on this massive television show. Sounds like losing weight's a recurring thing. I know. <laughs> she, um, and she's always wanted us to dance properly, and we never have. Oh. Um, other than after 11 at night, when we're really, really good <laughs> and uh, at weddings and things. And so, um, and then, and she said, I think, she, she said, if you look back on your life and you've turned this down, you'll never forgive yourself. And so... And I thought, well, okay, but, but who else do I get advice from? And so I, I texted, um, I actually direct messaged, because um, I didn't have his mobile phone, Jeremy Vine, um, because Jeremy was on last year, and I've been on his show quite a lot of times. We'd never been kind of friends or anything, and I direct messaged him, and he called me straight back, and he said, it is the most fabulous experience of my life. He wow. said it was the most amazing thing, the things you learn about yourself, about television, about dealing with... Um, with live television, he said, yeah. he said. He said, "I would absolutely uh, recommend it." And I said, "Will I ever be taken seriously again?" And he said, "Oh, don't worry about that." So, um, <laughs> so don't worry about that. And Arguably, so, that already wasn't an issue. Uh, well, exactly. <laughs> I, I was, you know, that boat had sailed. So I, um, and so, and so, and so, I said, um, I said yes. And then, in a sort of typical BBC way, they then sort of thought, you know, they thought about it for a few weeks and then came back and said, "Actually, we really want you to do it." And so. Um, I was in. Such and a actually, thing. do you know what's really stupid about this? This is going to sound so, so, um, so ridiculous, but um, I'm going on the show and I'm thinking about um, all the challenges you have. Um, the biggest challenge, by the way, was we get to the end of August and we have to go down to, to Roehampton to do the first um, rehearsal thing. And I said to Yvette, I said, I said, I said, on the Thursday before, the Monday, I said, what do I wear? And she said, well, I've no idea. She said, what have you got? And I said, well, I've got lycra and suits. Because <laughs> I've, I've done marathon running in suits. And she said, but that's not going to work. She said, you need to, do, uh, to wear leisure wear. 
And I have, I've never worn leisure wear in my life. <laughs> so we went onto um, the Amazon website and sort of bought a series of leisure wear. They all arrived in boxes on the Sunday, in different sizes and all that kind of stuff. And then, so we go down to Rehampton on the Monday and we go in. And this is all kind of on, on, um, uh, 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 on television. The, the, um, the celebrities meet the professionals and this all goes on, learn this dance. And I'm wearing um, black tracksuit trousers and a light blue polo shirt. Nice. And, um, which I thought was, well, I mean, you know, it was a bit ridiculous, but it was okay. And then I saw everybody else was wearing black. And this hadn't occurred to me at all. And then about 20 minutes in to the first bit of rehearsal, I've got this massive blue stain, dark blue, all the way yeah, yeah, across yeah. here. And that was why everybody else was wearing black. And so I spent the whole of the first day trying to hide behind Laura Watmore because I thought she was really nice. If I hid behind her a bit, I could be off camera and poke my head out. So um, that was the, um, the, the leisure wear reality. But the one thing I hadn't thought of was actually, who was it? It was, it was actually an MP colleague. It was Jim Knight, um, former MP, or Kevin Brennan, who said to me, I hope you don't get voted out in the first week. What with your election and that? <laughs> and I suddenly thought, oh, shit. <laughs> what were, you know, so, so my only worry for those first three or four weeks was, you know, for me to be voted out again by the public in the first week. <laughs> and that was all I was really cared about. And actually, so when I got through the first vote, I was just like... Massive relief. And ever since then, we've been plain sailing. I mean, what, what's so striking about the way you talk about it is that it actually seems like quite a profoundly positive experience, not just a bit of fun, but that actually, perhaps, I, I would expect that in politics you'd have got that satisfaction from policies you'd enacted or people you'd helped, but actually it, it feels like this has given you a, a real sense of, maybe it, not achievement, well, but of it, happiness. It's a totally different thing. It's a totally different thing from politics, and you have to sort of, you know, kind of understand and accept both these different worlds. So I came out of politics not... In, um, in a way I expected, but actually in a way which I was kind of quite, quite happy with that night because if Cameron was having a majority, I didn't want to do another five years in opposition. I was out. Suddenly, though, I had no plan. And so to go back to Harvard and have a midlife crisis or to become chairman of a football club, to go on Strictly, these were all things which I never thought I would do. But I mean, take the moment while you, while you um, can. And there are some aspects of it which are totally different from anything you've ever, that you've ever experienced before. So um, I've had really nice pieces written about me in the Daily Mail, which is just sort of an incomprehensible <laughs> thing. And people, are, um, and, and, and people in the media don't want to immediately knock you down at every stage. You have people um, uh, on TV programmes or members of the public say, I always knew you were a politician, but it's really great to find out you're a human being as well. <laughs> and you sort of think, well, actually, us politicians, we always were human beings. And, um, and I've had a spray tan, which I've never, ever had in my life. Really? It's still on. Well, we come back to that if you like. It's actually, um, <laughs> but, um, but to, to be serious, to answer... I mean, um, well, you definitely should come back to spray tans because it's the most amazing thing. Um, so do you, have to do, it like, do you have to sit there in like a little G-string with like the, the sort well, of weird see, I thought, Well, OK, we'll do spray tans now. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was a joke. Yeah. I never thought anybody had a spray tan. I thought sometimes people sat in a booth and yeah. had like infrared or infrared or whatever. Yeah. But the idea that you spray UV. a tan on, I just never thought this... Anyway, so I... I turn up at the thing, and people, the people on the production side say, you can have a spray tan. I say, what? People actually have them? They said, oh, yeah. Everybody has them, but it's voluntary. So I then rang Jeremy Vine again and said, <laughs> said 
watch this about spray tan. So he said, you've got to do it. <laughs> Embrace the whole thing. He said, he said, in fact, he said, I had one my first week, and I asked one of the professionals how to do it, and he said, you've got to go naked. <laughs> And so Jeremy Vine, so what happens is, in, in the production office there, they have this little tent thing in, the, in a room like that, and you, you go in, and um, Jeremy Vine went in absolutely stark naked and was sprayed all over. You see the grapes on the vine. Front, <laughs> back, side, side, the lot. He had the whole, the, he had the whole thing done. And um, it turned out that um, he's the only person in the history of Strictly to actually do it entirely naked. <laughs> so he was sold this pup by one of the professionals. Because if you think about it, what costume <laughs> at 6.30 on a Saturday night could you ever wear which would require you to have a spray tan everywhere? Do you know what I mean? It's well before the watershed. Even a string vest would never require that. But um, so, I've, so um, I've christened this the, um, the full Jeremy. <laughs> and I, I have not had a full Jeremy. Other people on the show have do it in paper pants. Okay. And a hat. Paper pants, which... But, but I've not done that either. I decided to go for, for the top half up. So from here upwards. Yeah. And I went for quite a light shade. Okay. It's nice. Because I didn't want to overdo it. But there is... I, I won't show you, but there is a line about here where it suddenly lightens up. Um, uh, I wasn't going to do it, but, um, because I thought it was voluntary. But then a week into the show... The producers kept saying, well, you know, it's totally up to you, but you're going to look a bit pale. Um, <laughs> and the pressure built. And I think in the end, I just decided, because last week, I did a Paso Doble last week, which was so bad. <laughs> I thought, we're likely to go out this week. And if I go out without having had a spray tan, I'd have just missed the full experience. <laughs> and so I went in on Friday and said, I'm not doing a full Jeremy, but I'll go top half, fairly light, do, do the business. So, those of you who are interested to know, you actually have this, they have this big spray gun and they're going to go... Like Shawshank. All down you like that. And then you, you, you go home and then... Um, and I, I, um, I said to the spray tanner, I said, how does it work? She said, think of it like the way an apple oxidises once it's peeled. And I said, what? You're going she, off? She said, what happens is, so you sleep overnight... Think of that as like the peeling process. And then the next day, um, you have a shower, which warms things up. And then that sort of embeds the tan. Mm. And then it then stays then for about five or six days, because it's sort of got under the skin, if you like. And um, so I'm, I'm probably in, my, in, in the latter days of my tan from last Friday. So, and, um, the, and, but, uh, uh, but you asked a serious question about it, which I'm going to answer. Yeah. Which is, well, I was, um, was going to actually wonder, what, what, I mean, what is it next week? Back, sack and crack? <laughs> I, think, I don't think a full Jeremy is ever going to happen, but I am <laughs> wondering about doing bottom half as well as top half. Oh, you might. I think, live the dream. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, and also, Jeremy Vine did say to me in August, he said, you've got to embrace the whole thing. And I time didn't know what, I, what he meant, but now I'm beginning to get an inkling of what he was really talking about. But the one thing about it is, which is different, which is, different is that what, you know, it's fun and you learn and it's really hard. It's mentally exhausting. I've done eight hours today in a dance studio. I'll do eight tomorrow. I did eight yesterday. You, know, you have to get from total novice on a Monday to perform on a Saturday. And... Um, so, it, it's, and, and the media kind of interest and the warmth of it all is like nothing I've ever experienced before. And I think in politics you don't normally. But the difference is, um, 
in politics, you change people's lives. And you change people's lives if you are the prime minister or a treasury advisor on a macro scale. But it's also if you're a constituency MP on a Friday and somebody comes in with a problem which for them is kind of overwhelming and you have the opportunity, not always, because sometimes you can't, but often to do things which are transformatory in that person's life. And although I love doing Strictly and the kind of the entertainment of it, I don't change anybody's life, not in the way that you can as a member of parliament. And I think if there's one thing that I'm doing, I'm saying that politicians are human beings and they can try and sometimes fail and they're human and they can have frailties, but they can also be enthusiastic. And I like the fact that people in the country say it's good to see a politician who's a human, but actually it's not a compensation for being a politician. Because, you know, the politicians, there's some in here tonight, they do things in their lives like a surgeon does or a lawyer might do or somebody who is um, a social worker or a child carer. Comedian. A comedian. Yeah. I wasn't going to complete comedian. <laughs> Noble calling. They, they change people's lives in a, in a more profound way. And so the, the honest answer is that, um, that I miss that because actually that's really, really important and that's what politics does. But it's not just that, it's that you're doing it on behalf of politicians and the rest of it. I think it is specifically because your political character was effectively a sort of bruiser, hard man. Uh, you know, you're, you were seen as very much a, a tough guy. And then now you're sort of, you know, dancing. It's not just that it's any politician. It is that it's specifically you, that it's, there is something about Ed Balls that people go, I can't believe... You know, they can understand the Dean Dorries going in the jungle or, you know, George Galloway doing stuff. But it does seem particularly odd and therefore brilliant that it's you because I think a lot of people might presume that perhaps you were too serious to do it. I don't know. I think that um, I'm doing it for middle-aged men and women. <laughs> who, you know, I'm doing it for dad, dan for, for dad dancers um, um, and mum dancers, if you like, in, in the country. Because I think, um, you know, I actually, you know, without wanting to blow my own trumpet, I was actually quite a good dad dancer. Yeah. And was known in Labour Party circles late at night for being willing to do a bit. But basically, I thought that dancing meant moving everything at the same time <laughs> in the hope that something might become in time. And, um, and that is actually what um, most people do when they dance. And actually, the hardest thing to learn is that you're actually supposed to keep bits still. <laughs> and also, when they say wiggle your hips, I have a real problem because every time I try and do things with my hips, my jaw goes. <laughs> and I try to kind of keep things slightly Gordon Brown stable. <laughs> so, um, so, I, so, I, and I, but I think you know, the reality of politics is it's always a bit of a caricature. Mm. And of course, to be a politician, you have to be tough because you have to be able to endure and absorb and sometimes confront. And um, and hopefully, you do that in a honest way, in an open way, in a non-bullying way, but it is a tough thing. Mm. Um, but it's also the case that if you are, um, if you are, how can I put it, you know, if, you, if you're bigger in frame, then you're always going to have a bit of that caricature mm. as well. And I think that, um, that, that one of the things that, that, that we've talked about before is I went through a journey where I ended up talking very publicly about having a stammer and mm. dealing with that. And um, that was not a kind of bullish, um, typical macho thing to do. It was actually a very personal and quite vulnerable thing to do. But I think when I was a politician, that sort of got a bit discounted, really, because he's a politician. Yeah. Whereas I think once you kind of get out of that and into, um, you know, into, for me, what is a post-political kind of world, communication changes. And actually, people are willing to talk to you and listen to things you say um, in a, just in a different way. The prism of politics is very very powerful, 
and it refracts what people see, and they don't always see the truth. So the reactions to me, I would say, in the show divide into two. Um, well, there's probably a third, which is, which is who is this ridiculous guy we've never heard of before? But put that to one side. <laughs> there's, um, there, there's one view, which is, I'm really surprised to see who this person is because we had no idea. And those are people who don't know me. And I would say people who do know me, their main reaction is we always knew this is what you were like and it's interesting to see other people see that side of you as well. Because actually I've not changed. I mean, I've always been like this. I mean, how bad or good, but it's the truth. <laughs> so in terms of, you say you got off of the jungle, would you do any other reality TV or anything like that now? Mm-hmm. Now, that now that you've had a taste of it, are there other shows that you'd like to go on? No. Not no. I think this was um, I think this is unusual and special, and um, and, and and sort of like the pinnacle. Um, and so I, I I don't know what it, it's really interesting in 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 life maybe, but certainly in politics, you always plan. So I always sort of think to um, if I'm talking to people who are coming into politics, you know, I would, my advice would always be um, that you should always have a ten year plan and never forget that today might be your last day. And you sort of need to have those things in your mind as both at the same time. So you've always got to have a bit of short-termism in you because things can go really badly wrong. You've always got to be on your, on your kind of metal, but at the same time, you've got to have a plan. And, in, and, and if you're not thinking ahead, whether that's in terms of policy or your career or anything, then you never, ever progress. And for the very first time in my life, I have got absolutely no plan. I have, I have genuinely no idea what I'm going to be doing in May at all. And actually, um, it's quite liberating. For the first time, not to um, have to sort of be thinking about what, what next. So I've no idea what I'm going to do. Um, the thing I would like to do is to do something purposeful again and sort of, you know, in the way politics is purposeful. Mm. But um, uh, I've no idea what. I don't think another reality TV show, but maybe there's um, stuff you can do um, in, in, in communication or in entertainment. I don't know. I'm, I don't rule any of that out. But, I've, but I think, as I said, the thing you miss is purpose. But not... Going back to politics? I don't think so. I think, um, I mean, politics is so wild at the moment. And well, the Labour so, Party is. And, the, and it's, so, it's so, I mean, it's not clear. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has not rung me to offer me um, a seat. So, I mean, <laughs> um, but uh, I don't think you, it's so unstable at the moment and such a difficult time. I guess the thing I do feel is some guilt, you know, that... Um, that guilt? You know, I, I feel guilty that we're going through such a traumatic time as a country. We've got such big decisions to be made. The responsibility on the government and on the opposition in Parliament around Brexit is so great because we could mess things up for 50, 100 years in the next three years if we get this wrong. And, I, and I'm doing the cha-cha-cha. So I, there's, there's a part of me that feels, what have you done with your life? And it, every, you know, we had this thing last week. I was supposed to go, I was, I was doing a talk um, to a thing in the evening. Um, and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to say, but say, but I couldn't concentrate on it because I had to spend three hours learning to twirl a rucksack in the air before throwing it off, before going into an American smooth foxtrot. And I was actually sitting there thinking, you know, we actually had this, this moment this, this evening where, um, without revealing the, the show, it's Halloween this weekend. And, um, <laughs> and we have to, and the dance we're doing, they have all these VT bits, and it's all kind of quite um, camped up. And before me, and I'm a mad scientist who um, has to do something. And we had to do this VT where, so I've, I've got these glasses and a white coat in this. And as we were standing there waiting to start, there was, there was the, the cameraman, two producers, Katya and me. And I'm standing there and I turned and said, I wanted to be Chancellor. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, sort of, you know, 
<laughs> so, enough said. And they, they, they all kind of went, yeah. <laughs> and just kept me on. So there's, oh. there's a little bit of me which goes, you know, kind of every now and then during these weeks, you sort of think, <sighs> but then, then on you go. So um, oh. as I sit there, the music's about to start. I'm about to go and do the Charleston. I'm sort of thinking, Brexit, you know, <laughs> am I making my contribution? Oh, you're definitely making a contribution. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting that you mentioned specifically the, opposite, the office of Chancellor because something that comes out in your book, Speaking Out, which is a, a, a genuinely brilliant book, and I'm not just saying that because you agreed to do the show. Um, it, 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 I already it, agreed after you'd read it and you said it was good. I, I loved it. I, 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 and it's just for a number of reasons. Um, but what really comes through is your really deep burning desire to be Chancellor and the fact that you almost had it and Gordon had promised it and then changed his mind. That must have been... I mean, you deal with it very well in the book, but if you've coveted that as your lifetime ambition, to become so close at the hands of someone that was such a close ally and that yeah. for that close ally to effectively snatch it away, must well, have been very hard to deal with. What I, what I did um, with the book was I tried to write about themes, and it was actually more less about themes, more about lessons. So it was things which I wish I'd known when I started. Yeah. So it was like a letter to my 27-year-old self and it's also to people who think politics is important but don't know a lot about it from the inside to say, you know, that these are real people and these are how they think about things and here's what they do and don't do. And the chapter's called Ambition. And the chapter actually says that you can spend your whole life uh, wanting to get to a particular job and not getting there and find out that you've missed great things you've done along the way and I think that I'd actually worked that out partly I think by being so close to the Blair, the Blair Brown years and the Blair Brown relationship that I knew that I couldn't let what I did in politics be defined by one job and so um, what happened was um, in the the run-up to Gordon Brown becoming prime minister in 2007 I was already a treasury minister um, there was speculation I actually did an interview with, um, I can't remember who it was with, saying that I wasn't ready to be Chancellor and, and, and didn't want the job. And I was hoping to get into the Cabinet, but not that. I knew I had an apprenticeship to, um, still to do. And um, as I was saying, I knew I had a problem, which turned out to be a stammer, which I didn't know what it was at the time. So I didn't find that out until after I was in the, the, um, in the Cabinet. But I knew there was an issue. And, and then, on the day that Gordon became, um, became leader... He called me into this room up in Manchester at the, the announcement. It was basically a kitchen um, and said, I've thought about this and I've decided to go for it. I'm going to make David Miliband Foreign Secretary, you Chancellor and Jackie Smith Home Secretary. And I said, well, look, you know, that's your call. Uh, I've said I don't think I'm ready for it. I'm not pushing for this. And um, he said, no, it's the right thing to do. And then decided 48 hours later he couldn't and changed his mind and then told me that, um, that he wasn't going to do it. And I, I, I think, actually, I was probably quite relieved um, that, that I wasn't at that point. And that began a conversation which went on all of that time where I'm doing the education children's job. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I wanted to be Chancellor if I could. Um, there was then a financial crisis. I was doing the children's secretary job. Alistair Darling was the Chancellor. That was a very important relationship, a difficult relationship. I didn't want to be the Alan Walters figure of the government and sort of destabilise that. And but Gordon kept saying, I want to do this, and then pulling away. And I think the important thing I learned was um, not to think that was the most important thing in my political life. Because mm. if I had, 
I think I'd have, uh, I'd have had a bitter time. I, I love being a cabinet minister. It was very hard. We did some good things. But I didn't spend my whole time wishing I wasn't the children's secretary. And I, and I could have done. And so although you read that chapter and you, maybe you think how hard it must have been to have something taken away, yeah. I think I was very focused on that not being defining in my life. Because if it had have been... I'd be really disappointed now. Whereas actually, I'm really proud of what I did in politics. I'm proud of New Labour. I'm proud of what we achieved. I'm proud of what I did at the Treasury and in, in government. I refuse to be defined by the job I didn't get because this, that would be so sad. Oh, it would be. But, but, but you and economics go together in a way that very few politicians and their briefs do. You know, you, you'd been uh, at the heart of the brown oper op operation, even phrases right. like, you know, non-endogenous growth theory or whatever it was. It's actually uh, post-neoclassical. Post-neoclassical non-endogenous growth theory. Endogenous. Uh, endo yeah, what Don't I worry about it. Um, <laughs> but it just, you and economics are, are just intrinsically linked, aren't they? Economics was a passion of yours as yeah. well as politics. Of course. Um, you were shadow chancellor under Ed Miliband. Yep. Um, so you got to sort of shadow the brief. Uh, and it's only really in reading your book that, that light has really shone on that relationship with you and Ed. Because from the outside world, sometimes it was difficult to tell how close you were, uh, how involved you were in Labour strategy at the time. And actually, the book seems to reveal that you were two very separate individuals during that, that period. That's true. I mean, I was very involved in our economic strategy um, because I was the Shadow Chancellor. Um, we had been very close for a lot of years when we were in the Treasury up to 2004 but well before Ed became leader. And I think in a way, in ways that I understand, so this is not a criticism, but he, he pulled away. I think he had seen um, the Blair-Brown relationship and the fact, in some ways, the fact that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown continued to be so close was destabilising. And I think he, and he already had a brother who was <laughs> going to be a rival. So I think there was, there was, there was, you know, I think he probably thought he had... He, that he had one older brother already and didn't want a second one. And I think he just sort of... And so he definitely distanced himself. And then, of course, he didn't make me shadow chancellor to begin with. And, um, you know, Ed kept things very tight, um, the way in which he did strategy. And so people like me were not really involved. And that was how we did it. Now, I didn't particularly like it, um, but he was the leader and he'd won the election. So that, that, was, that was his call. And I certainly had the opportunity to say what I thought when I... Um, was asked uh, and did, but um, but it was distant, <laughs> and and I, distant, and, and I, I sort of slightly I regret that, and I regret it now. Um, but there's a chapter in the book about friendship in politics, and whether you can, you know, whether you can sustain friendships, and whether friendships are compatible with high office, and whether you can put them back together. Mm. In some ways, I think the um, even though Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were close, that became less so uh, over time. It, was, it, uh, it never was as distant as people understood, mm. but the tension in the relationship politically was very important. In my view, I think the Conservative government after 2010 suffered because David Cameron and George Osmond were too close. Mm. And in that relationship between the Prime Minister and Chancellor, you need some grit and some tension. And George Osborne was not tough enough with David Cameron and vice versa on some key issues, whether that was the pace of deficit reduction or on the timing of Brexit. And actually, you needed some tension. Um, interestingly, Gordon Brown and Robin Cook had a very bad relationship all the time they were in the cabinet and then became very close indeed in the final three years of Robin Cook's life before he died tragically early. And the story I sort of start the book, that, that chapter is, was going down to see Dennis Healy three years ago when I was Shadow Chancellor 
at his, his Sussex farm um, or house to um, and to get advice. And I wanted and I wanted to say to him, um, tell me about your relationship with Tony Benn because in the early eighties it was so difficult and and cantankerous and harsh that relationship. And Dennis Healy says to me, look, he said my, my he, he said my wife died two years ago. Tony Benn was the first person to call me. He had lost his wife a couple of years before. He's been a huge support to me. We're very good friends. And I won't hear a word said against him. And I said, but you were bitter rivals in the 80s. He said, yeah, he said, but in the end, we were comrades and on the same side, and he's my friend. And I, the, the conclusion I took from that was that even if, in the most difficult times, when it's really, really hard, uh, and when friendship suffers, you can put it back together again. And so... I think uh, that you should never give up on friends in politics. It's really hard to have them at the highest levels, but you should never give up because things come back together again in the end. So um, uh, the first thing Dennis Healy did when I arrived at, at 11.30 in the morning was give me a drink, a gin and tonic, because he was from that era. Nice. And so, um, so I'm hoping that me and Ed Miliband will be having gins and tonics in due course. I hope so, and I, and I hope Tony Blair and Gordon Brown repair what they had. Yeah. I kind of think they will. To elder statesmen who... They should. Perhaps the, perhaps the state of the Labour Party might precipitate that. Do you think? Go, well, Gordon has shown in the Robert Cook relationship that he can. Um, and with Peter Mandelson he did. And with Peter Mandelson he did. Although, yes, in some ways Gordon and Peter were always closer through that period. Um, I think things never ever in the, in the close relationships broke down as much as you might think. People on around the outside. Basically, go back to that issue about prisms of politics and how people see what's happening in politics. The biggest disaster for New Labour in, in you know, going through the 2001 election was that the Tories were so weak. Mm. It was a catastrophe that Ian Duncan Smith became the leader. They basically collapsed as a political force after William Hague. There was no issue about Labour versus Conservative during that period, really, yeah. even despite Iraq. So the whole question became the, the succession. Was Tony Blair going to be succeeded by Gordon Brown? Would there be somebody else who would take over instead? And even though, at that time, compared to now, there was a quite strong ideological unity. We, we were left of centre, progressive, not anti-capitalist, but wanting to intervene to make the market economy work. We were internationalist, pro-European, but reformers. Uh, you know, people, we believed in a free NHS. And, um, but the succession battle because that was the only prism, Blair, Brown and the succession, just took over and it was, ended up being hugely damaging to New Labour, to their reputations and to the, the country. I do think that at the moment, the, one of the biggest problems Theresa May's got is that Labour's too weak. Mm. Theresa May needs a strong opposition to stop the only issue in the country being the divide between Theresa May and Philip Hammond or David Davis and Philip Hammond and a rift in the Conservative Party over... <laughs> the future of the party and its relationship to Europe in the next two years, at a time when you need the government to be effective and the opposition to be tough, would be really dangerous. But if it happens, it will be because Labour's too weak. And therefore, the story becomes the Tory divide. And the one thing which we know is governments who are divided make bad decisions. And if you're just trying to decide the future of your country coming out of the European Union, the one thing you really should not be doing is making bad decisions. And you know, I have this instinct at the moment... I really hope I'm wrong, but I'm worried that Theresa May will be not a good Prime Minister. I'd like her to be a good Prime Minister for the country, whatever I think about her politics. And I think she'd be a better Prime Minister if she had a better opposition. So then, the issue with the Labour Party, obviously, is, is the leadership model. 
because it means that MPs cannot remove Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and the Labour Party membership has moved significantly to the left, really more, more left than at any point during your parliamentary career, uh, by a significant yes. uh, margin. How then does Labour become a decent opposition at well, any I, near point in the future? Well, I, I think it's really hard. Um, and, and I think you're right that these structural changes are... Um, we've had moments in the history of the party in the last 100 years when this could have happened, and it hasn't before. Mm. And it's not as though there haven't been these kind of tensions and difficulties before in the 50s and the, uh, the, um, the early 80s and the, in earlier periods as well, in the, you know, at, at, the, um, at the end of the 45 government. But uh, to move towards... I mean, the, the, the Labour Party has always had um, a balance between the members of parliament and the members and the trade unions and the way in which we chose leaders. There were really good reasons for that. Mm. Um, you know, the, the irony was that um, part of the reason why Ed Miliband ended up deciding to go for one member, one vote was because the Conservatives had done that. Um, if you remember, William Hague went for one member, one vote, choosing Conservative leaders to stop Ken Clark becoming the leader in 2001 because he was too pro-European. Um, and in a way, you, both parties have this sort of same dilemma, which is they now have a one-member-one-vote leadership election process where the party members are probably not really reflective of where the swing voters are, um, certainly for Labour, for the Conservatives as well. And um, the Conservatives solved that problem this summer by not having an election, <laughs> by just sort of just by choosing a leader de facto. Whereas Labour is still doing it by um, by elections, under, you know, rightly, but this is this is problematic. And if um, your know, politics is not like a you know a tennis club, where the members elect the committee to then represent the interests of the tennis players, um, in politics the members um, have a responsibility. But actually, what matters is also the views of the voters. And if the members become disconnected with the, from the views of the voters. Then um, and that pulls apart. Then it's very hard then to to um, to win elections because you're kind of moving away from that 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 equilibrium. And the glue between the two is MPs because they're the ones who have to appeal to the voters, not just the members. That's why we've always had an electoral college. That's why Tom Wat uh, and uh, Tom Watson's right to say we should look again at the electoral college because I think especially for a left of centre party, if you move away from that, then it's then it's then it becomes hard. Now, the the, the um, it's possible that you can get more people who vote Labour to be members of the party, mm -hmm. and it's possible that the leadership of the party will see that being in opposition and being cheered by members is insufficient and what matters is to reach towards the centre-left and persuade the voters. Um, and Jeremy Corbyn's now got a second mandate. So in my view, you know, that's his job. I mean, I have a chapter on opposition in the book which says opposition is really rubbish. And although it's important to have an opposition... Being in opposition is, in of itself, you know, not, not purposeful. What's purposeful is getting from opposition into government, and you have to see that as your mission. And so Jeremy Corbyn has now got to show, and the Shadow Cabinet's now got to show, that um, Labour can be a party of opposition who wants to be in government. And that means that, um, you know, he's got to, to build trust, and he's got to think about policies, but also... Um, 
understand people's lives outside those people who come to, um, to, to rallies. And every time you see on, I mean, on Twitter, you know, people like me, get, people like you, Matt, <laughs> get a call accused of being, you know, we are sort of neoliberal Tories. Yeah, it's yeah. just kind of, when you actually think about the lives we've lived and what we've done, it's totally ridiculous. But, um, but then people will also say, but um, <laughs> people will also say that, you know, that, that, that um, how can you say Jeremy Corbyn's not succeeding when you look at the number of people who come to his rallies to cheer him? Mm. But the problem is, most people who vote are too busy to go to rallies because they're worrying about their jobs or their kids or their house or their lives, and they're the ones who are going to decide who the government is. Mm. And I'm afraid that... Um, if, you, if Labour becomes a party of its members, for its members, who thinks the support of its members is in and of itself success, then um, we're in massive trouble. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Uh, Labour has obviously been in trouble for a while. Uh, and then it's interesting, obviously, it's in the book and it isn't too hard to, to understand that being in opposition is immensely frustrating when you want to be in government. Those, that period then when you are Ed Miliband shadow chancellor and it felt like Labour could conceivably form a government either in coalition perhaps or might just scrape over the line in, in the last general election. Did you instinctively feel like Labour wouldn't win last time or was there part of you that thought actually you, you could be on the, the cusp of it? I think that um, it's your job to try and win. And it's your job as the opposition to, 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 to show there's a choice and an alternative and to, to uh, challenge. I think um, back in 2010 into 2011, at the start, I thought um, it was really hard because um, the, the, the burden Labour carried from being... Um, well, there's two things, actually. One, the burden Labour carried from being the party which was in government in the financial crisis was just mm. very, very big. And actually, um, sometimes bearing that kind of burden, opposition parties split and fragment. And Ed Miliband's great achievement was Labour at that time did not split and fragment and stayed uh, cohesive. 
but that was one a big burden. And the second thing which happened, which was, um, which was actually disastrous, in my view, was the decision Nick Clegg made about the coalition, uh, not the decision to go into coalition, because I think that was fair enough. The Liberal Democrats were the people who could go in with the Conservatives. Labour couldn't. They were never going to come in with us. Um, but the decision Nick Clegg made in 2010 to sideline Vince Cable, to shift their economic argument, to go along with David Laws and basically say, we agree with George Osborne, that the deficit plan and this plan and the pain we have to put to, to impose upon the most vulnerable, um, I think that, that was a mistake. Um, it was a mistake for his party. It was a mistake for the country. And it was a disaster for us because if it hadn't been for that, it would have been... Conservative versus Labour, different arguments on different sides. Once Nick Clegg, on that argument, went in with the Conservatives, it became you know, a coalition in the national interest. Mm. And he, with the Conservatives, were able to unite established opinion in not only thinking that anything Labour said was wrong, but also that it was all Labour's fault. And I, and I, and, and I think those two things, the, the burden we carried and the coalition and the Clegg approach to the coalition were both very difficult. However, mm. the reality was, as the Parliament went on, and especially in the final six months, um, with the Conservatives not popular, the recovery not delivering, the deficit not coming down, people's incomes being squeezed, you know, it was impossible not to think. Uh, I thought, at the beginning of the election campaign, it was a less than 50% chance Ed Miliband would be Prime Minister, but I thought it was more than 25%. And so, and, and in politics... Those are, those are really realistic percentages to fight over because, as we know, times are uncertain. So I never gave up, and we never um, stopped working hard. And I always thought there was a chance. And I think the reality was the, um, what happened with the polls and the SNP was a killer for us. I mean, it was a disaster. It's interesting that you address the economic uh, legacy, particularly of the crash and of the rescue, because that was something that I found immensely frustrating, was that Labour under Ed Miliband's leadership, didn't really want to talk about the positive aspects of having bailed out the banks, that working-class people could get the money out of cash machines. And it felt as if the Labour Party just accepted the narrative. It wasn't just Nick Clegg going in with the Tories. There seemed to be very little counter-narrative on the economy and on the crash coming from well, Labour. I think, I, think, um, I think there was, well, one, there was a lot of counter-narrative, but I think that the, a coalition in the national interest... Um, with the CBI and business supporting that sort of that, that almost apolitical coalition, mm. that was more powerful than anything that we could um, do. Um, do you think Ed was reluctant? Was Ed Miliband reluctant well, to sort of refight that argument? I think though that um, we talked a lot about how much we should go back and refight that argument, mm. and um, and it was it was genuinely um, a dilemma because I think actually. Um, on the one hand, people's view that it happened under Labour's watch was very deep. And also, people are much more inclined to look forward. And so we thought that our energy should go more into um, how things can be rather than who got us to where we are. Um, but I also think that um, you know, if you go back to the 2010 leadership election and how that, that worked out, in the end, Ed fought the leadership election as the... Um, the anti-New Labour candidate. And it was really frustrating because, you know, although I was more brown and David Miliband was more Blair, we were all New Labour. We were all New Labour who 
were happy to talk about what New Labour had got wrong and how we have to learn and change, but we were, but we were talking about the, the, the evolution of that. And Ed made a decision to be the come through the middle as the anti-New Labour candidate. His first conference speech in 2010 was a, um, a rejection of Blair and Brown. Once he'd done that, it was then very hard to, um, for him to go back. So I think that emotionally and politically, he couldn't do it. Um, I'm not sure whether it would have been right anyway. I mean, I probably did more to defend our record, especially on spending, than um, than, 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 than most. And I, you know, I mean, it was totally ridiculous. And without one, without, I'm not going to criticise you at all, Matt. <laughs> um, but um, people who come from your part of the party, our mm. part of the party, but in particular, you know, because you would say a big Tony Blair guy. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> spent 2010 and 2011, 2012 having a real go at me that I wasn't doing enough to admit that Labour overspent and caused the problem. And by 2014, having a real go at me that I wasn't doing enough to defend Labour's economic record and what Blair and Brown did in the financial crisis. And actually, there was quite a big flip which happened over the course of the, the, the Parliament. The same people over that five years gave me a hard time both for not um, uh, admitting Labour screwed it up and not defending Labour's record in strong enough terms. And that was partly that confusion over the Parliament partly um, explains the mess as well. You know, I don't think we did um, enough to defend New Labour, but I think some of the people around Tony absolutely didn't do enough to defend New Labour in 2010, 11 and 12. Would you ever say to Ed, just stop slagging New Labour off? Like, stop trying to position yourself as anti-Blair or anti-Brown. As you know, um, I've, I've read about this in the book, and of course I did. And actually, I sort of... Um, and how would you take it? Well, I think... The, I did, but I mean, I think our conversations were probably more about how we would handle um, business, because that was, that was, in a way, a sort of symbol of this. Mm. The thing is, in the end, um, I had said to David and Ed, because it was obvious... Miliband was going to win uh, in 2010, that, that I would support them. And, and Ed won, and he'd won on that, that, that position. And in the end, you sort of have to respect the fact that the leaders won, and um, that's what they're going to do. So I, I, you know, I did not spend a lot of time in our conversations trying to refight the 2010 election, uh, 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 2010 leadership election. Um, but... Uh, you know, we, we did have those conversations, and in particular around um, one of the things you learn in politics is that you have to allow people to hold seemingly contradictory opinions simultaneously. Oh, thank God. And uh, no, it's fine, <laughs> and it's actually it's a very normal thing. Yeah, yeah. I um, so people think the bankers were terrible. Yeah. What they did to the economy, but they actually think banks are actually quite important because that's where you put your money. It's where you save, they often organise your mortgage, and banks are quite important in economies because they can do good things and bad things, and therefore they sort of want governments to be tough on sorting out the bankers, but actually they want you to work with banks because actually mm. they're quite important. And the same thing is true with business, which is that sometimes um, you know, people can be quite angry about businesses who don't rightly, who don't pay their fair share of tax or um, are using zero-hours contracts and... Um, and so you can sort of see, not only from Ed Miliband, but Theresa May in her conference speech, David Cameron, quite a lot of populist language about business. Mm. Uh, but also people know that businesses are people who employ people and they create jobs and um, government's got to work with business to make the economy stronger. And therefore, especially if you're Labour and you can't rely upon a sort of deep residual business party 
position, you can definitely be being tough on issues and sorting things out and confronting business on where there's a problem. But I think if you become an anti-business party, we think, you know, businesses, you know, are, are kind of unnecessarily predatory. And there's a line John McDonnell used yesterday about the problem with um, Heathrow is it's just people making profits. Yeah. And you read that and you think, I know, but actually, John, most people in the country think businesses making profits and growing and creating jobs and making the economy stronger is a good thing. And if you want to attack excess profits yeah. or you want to say they are monopolies or they are being abusive, but if you end up with a rhetoric which is anti-business, intrinsically, you can't succeed. So the discussion Ed and I used to have was not him being tough around zero-hours contracts or competition policy in the banks. I would say to him, that is fine, but you've also got to say businesses are important and my government will work with them because I want them to succeed, grow, make profits, create jobs, and that's what we'll do, which was a fundamental new Labour insight. And that was probably the place where he wouldn't, he wouldn't come down that road with me. And so that was very saying, frustrating. Ed, oh, for God's sake, you keep going all about business. You know, <laughs> oh, I, I, do you get it? Look, these guys are billionaires and they're all evil, for God's sake. Oh, come on. Uh. <laughs> So, and I would say, well, um, I know what you're saying, Ed, but... I think I mean, gonna... look, 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 Ed, I like you. You know, we used to work together, for God's sake. But the, well, this whole pro-business thing, you know, I'm just not into it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God I'm doing the cha-cha-cha. <laughs> <laughs> Replay my life. <laughs> I mean, there, was the, there was the relationship that you had with Miliband that was <laughs> that was that was funny and that was was a human interest story. I always thought what was always fascinating watching Parliament was your relationship with David Cameron, because you used to wind him up in a way, and he I got him, he was very quick to temper in his early years as Prime he Minister. Really was. You got to him in a way that I don't think anyone. I mean, on a weekly basis, you would do the sort of flatlining thing. And you could just see him. I remember once him just saying, I wish the Shadow Chancellor would you just shut up for a minute. <laughs> I couldn't believe I was seeing a Prime Minister talk like that in the House of Commons. Was, there, was there a secret I, to it? Or did he just was, look like you? Well, I think... Um, no, I think... I think... I think... I think... Um, I went to Parliament in 2005, and vet said, she said, I'll make a prediction. She said, George Osborne, when you first meet him, will engage with you, talk with you, and be friendly, and although... Um, you'll never be mates because we're on different sides, and you know he's George Osborne. He'll, you know, he will be, he'll be, he'll be friendly. And she said, and my prediction, she said, is that David Cameron, the first time um, you see him in the corridor, will walk past you, not say a word, and that's how it'll carry on. And she was absolutely right. Oh, yeah. And part of the David Cameron's problem as a politician was not that he did that to Labour politicians, but he did that to most of his backbenchers <laughs> as well, which is why he was never that great with um, the Conservative side. Uh, uh, either, and he was quite um, short-tempered. And if you, if you're not in opposition, you, you know you have to try. The thing which you always have to do, especially in um, when people see Parliament, so you know, see politicians so little, mm. and PMQs is this big platform, is you have to try, do your bit. And um, and I and PMQs were not doing any of the talking, but I tried to um, to do my bit. And the secret was that. Um, Basically, when you're in there, 
um, you're actually really close together. Yeah. And um, and it's uh, and the press gallery up there and the microphones um, are around, but actually it's possible to have conversations which nobody else can hear. Yeah. And George Osborne and I would have these conversations at every PMQs. And I would kind of lean over and say, he's not up to it. <laughs> Why doesn't he answer the question? <laughs> he's supposed to be the Prime Minister. You can't just turn up and just not be briefed. And George Osborne would go, well, look, if your guy was any good, he'd be exposing him. What's going on with Ed Miliband? <laughs> and I would say, you've got to get him to answer the questions. And, I would, and so we'd have these kind of... And I would then say, David... You're supposed to be Prime Minister. <laughs> Answer the questions and don't just give us politics. Tell us what you're going to do. And, and, and this would kind of go on for about... And, and Sadiq Khan would sit... Um, would run a, um, a kind of like a... Um, a book? Almost as like a sweepstakes. <laughs> about, about what time. And so, you know, and so at a certain point, you know, this would be going on. And Cameron would suddenly turn around and say, why don't you just shut up? <laughs> and Sadiq Khan would go, eight minutes, 30 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and that's... Um, <laughs> and, and there was always a sort of, you know, and um, if, if Ed Miliband um, had really hit Cameron, yeah. then I would be a bit quieter that day. Yeah. But any day where it was a bit more difficult for us... That's why Ed, you were loud a lot. Yeah. Ed Miliband would be like, get him, get him, get him. So Ed would be nudging me and telling me to, to have a go. And then, um, because what we knew with Cameron was the, the, in the end, that sort of, the same part of him which walked by and didn't speak to you would always come out. And he would do it to Dennis Stinskin, I did it to Angela Eagle, did it to Nadine Doris. He would do it to both sides, yeah. but at a certain point, that sort of, you know, I think the sort of brittle arrogance would come out. And I was just kind of, um, just, just good at just, you know... I didn't have to speak by the end. You're the flatlining thing. I, I know, well, yeah. Were there other hand movements? It was a great piece of communication, flatlining. If you actually think about it, a Primus's questions, you can't get to speak at all, and yet the word flatlining became an economic term of jargon, yeah. simply by just going... <laughs> <laughs> and, and you could see him looking over. and thinking, yeah. <laughs> but then, as I say in the book, I then used to go back to my room, walk in at 12.30 and sit there and think... Is this really what's become of my life? <laughs> is this really my contribution to um, politics? This, as I said, was before the cha-cha-cha, <laughs> so it's... Um, but but I, I never particularly... The thing is, about Primus' questions, is that the, um, the tone is entirely set by the Prime Minister. Mm. The Prime Minister is in, really in com- complete control of that, that, of that communication, and it's such a massive focal event. So... David Cameron had said he was going to break from punch and duty politics. And then he was, from the beginning, more partisan yeah. than any prime minister had been. You know, you just, you know you, they would have, like, a first question, even before Edmund O'Banner got up, when it would all become, you know, you're all financed by Unite and the trade union bosses. And you'd sort of sit there thinking, God's sake, you know, there are lots of conservative trade unionists. Do you really have to be so... And, um, so in those circumstances, when he has got the floor and he's being utterly partisan, it was our job to, um, you know, to push back. And that's, um, that's what we did. But, I mean, personally, I hated it in the sense that I think that was, I think it was a bad way to do PMQs. You know, I think um, when I did debates in the House of Commons, and actually when me and George Osborne did it, we were always, there was always um, much more um, humour in it. Yeah, there's a lot of levity. One of the best ones was, um, George, you know, I... Um, I don't, know, I don't know whether you noticed, but I had a couple of um, car incidents. Um, you know, kind of 
three points here and three points oh, yes, there, yes. kind of which was um, kind of incredibly frustrating, a bit disappointing, and was all over the sun or whatever. And there was one time where George Osmond decided to go for it and stands up and gives me this lecture about um, <laughs> being the man who'd literally crashed the car. <laughs> and and my reply was, well, you know. I'm happy to discuss whiplash with you, George, anytime, <laughs> anytime. Mr. Whiplash, or speed. Mr. Yeah, exactly, or, or, or speed. <laughs> but, um, but, it, but there was always humour, but, it, actually, but it, was, it wasn't as sort of nasty as PMQs was, and that was because he just did it in a different way. And I, I think that um, the trees are made. I think Jeremy Corbyn was right to change, try and change the tone when he became leader of the opposition, but frankly, you can't do it from leader of the opposition. No. And I think Theresa May will now change the tone, and that's going to be a really good thing. And it'll be much more like how it was Tony Blair and William Hague and um, Margaret Thatcher and Neil Kinnock. It was never how it was in those years. And um, the Prime Minister decides that. So, um, you know, I'm not proud of what I did because I, don't, I didn't like it very much. But given David Cameron was the Prime Minister, there was no choice. It had to be done. <laughs> <laughs> that's how we saw it. But isn't it fascinating that David Cameron is probably someone that people would feel more affection for than George Osborne? And if Astrid would probably say he seems like a nicer chap than George Osborne, actually your personal experience is that Cameron was arrogant and distant and Osborne was far friendlier. Yeah. I mean, look, I think, I think um, David, you know, David Cameron, I think, is probably a really personal um, um, man with his family and with his friends and has a good time. So, so, I, so, you know, I don't want to say he's not a nice person. He's probably a really nice person. I actually don't know him at all. I've hardly ever spoken to him in my life. Um, I know George Osborne much better just because... He's, he's, he's a much more open person, and also professionally, we've had a lot more kind of uh, uh, um, uh, communication. Um, so I'm not going to say, but I think that, that, that David Cameron, as a politician, was much more aggressive, partisan, and um, wanting to put people down on both sides, on his own side. And I don't think to be, um, and I, I think that, that made him different from other senior Conservatives of this um, period. I don't think that's how it would be, be remembered in history. I think it would be, be remembered in history for making an absolutely catastrophic decision about the EU referendum, mm. which I think is, is, a, is a... I mean, I think the, the way he went about this was utterly disastrous and predictably disastrous all the way through. Um, I thought him w walking out of the summit in 2012, was it, the six-pack summit, the the kind of the summit where they were trying to get a treaty um, around um, around dealing with the euro crisis, and walking out and playing the sceptic card. Mm. Every British prime minister since we joined the European Union, including Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, John Major, and Margaret Thatcher, have always been tempted to walk out of summits, and they never have because they know once you walk out, you never go back in, in the same way. Mm. It was a catastrophically poor piece of statesmanship, and then. To, um, it was fine for him to want the renegotiation, but having failed to get what he said he was going to get in the renegotiation, to then come back um, in the spring of this year and say, I've reset the relationship, it's now all fine, was a catastrophic misjudgment because um, I'm afraid lots of people in the country said, well, if you think that's fine, it's not good enough for me. Mm. And he ended up with David Cameron being the defender of the status quo on Europe, on Europe when the status quo wasn't defensible. You know, as a pro-European, I wanted to stay in the European Union, but I didn't want the status quo. I wanted to change and reform. Mm. And he ended up becoming, in any referendum, status quo versus um, change. Yeah. Change can often win. Um, and you know, I think he drew the conclusion from Scotland, and actually from the general election, that him himself saying, I embody the status quo, is sufficient. And it was a terrible misjudgment. 
And that's what he'll be remembered for. He won't be remembered for being Rita Angela Eagle. He'll be remembered for a catastrophically poor piece of statesmanship on, on Europe. But, um, you, know, it's, you know, he's gone. And the question is, can this generation now sort it out? Indeed. Uh, let's let's uh, open up the floor to some questions from the audience. So I'll bring the house lights up. Someone's going to come round with the microphone. Yes, the lady at the front. Uh, let us know your name and uh, the question, please. Hello. Hi, I'm Sarah. Hello. Um, so, a bit of a light-hearted question. If um, we're going to keep Yvette out of it, because I feel like that'd be too easy, but if you had to have one current MP in this parliament or the last parliament for your Strictly partner, who would it be? Oh, thank God that's the way it went. My word. <laughs> The word had was really loaded for a moment there. I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you, I'm, I'm in the, I will answer your question. I'm in, I'm in this new phase of, political, of post-politics communication where you sort of have to try and answer questions straight. Because the thing which people really... Ha- in politics, you have to do it sometimes, but people find it really difficult when you don't give straight answers. And I was actually on the Radio 1 breakfast show last Friday with, with um, Nick Grimshaw. Bloody and um, <laughs> What fif- was that like? 15 minutes. 15 minutes. They'd had a thing two days before where um, Jess Glynn had been on. They were doing some wow. game. Jess Glynn, they're, they're doing, there's some game where you had to say, you know, kind of, you had to kind of choose from, they had to, you know, like VAT or the House of Commons or Ed Balls or something else. They went on this list and she said at the end, can I just say, Nick, what is Ed Balls? <laughs> <laughs> so they then spent 48 hours saying, what is Ed Balls on the show before I then come on? And they say, what is Ed Balls? And I say, well, look, to be honest, I've absolutely no idea. <laughs> I mean, is it, um, is it a tweet? Is it a day? Is it yeah. um, a bruiser? Is it... Um, I said, the one thing it's not is a Pasadoble. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, but they then say to me, we're going to play a game of, um, of marry, snog, avoid. <laughs> and they said, so, um, so your choice is um, Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn and Barack Obama. So live on the radio, I'm faced with this dilemma, which is, <laughs> am I a politician or have I moved on? Because <laughs> if I'm a politician, I'm ducking it. Yeah. But if I've moved on, I'm answering it. And I thought, Strictly Come Dancing, <laughs> got to answer this question. So, I mean, before I continue what I said, I actually think, I actually, I'm actually wondering, I mean, I thought about saying Nikki Morgan, because I think she might dance quite well. But having thought about it hard, I'm going to say... Um, the chief whip, Rosie Winton, because I think she would be a wonderful former dance partner. Former chief whip, Rosie Winton, because I think she would be, I think she'd be a great dancer and she would throw herself into it with the same elan that I have over the last um, six weeks. So that's the answer to the question. But on the other one, what do you say? So I said, <laughs> snog Barack Obama. Okay, yes. The reason I said that was because I thought, me snogging Jeremy Corbyn is a story. <laughs> Yeah, but hang on. If you, oh, wait, wait. Yeah, but hold on. <laughs> you snogging Obama is a story. <laughs> like, no, I thought, and me snogging <laughs> Theresa May is a story. Whereas me snogging Obama, I mean, who wouldn't snog Barack Obama? So I say, I'll snog oh, Barack Obama. I then said, I'll marry Theresa May. Because I thought if I avoid it, that's a problem. So I said, I'll marry her. And, um, and I said, so therefore, you know, uh, I'll have to avoid Jeremy Corbyn. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so they then said, OK, moving on. Um, Craig, Bruno and Len snog marry and avoid. Another hard one. So I said, <laughs> so I said I'm going to snog Craig. Because I've actually snogged him before. I did, a, Where? I did a teach first event when I was Secretary of State. And he was the compare. And I moved towards him thinking I'm a politician. But he's so light entertainment, 
he just slobbered all over me. So, so I've kissed him before, so I thought, you know, it was OK, I'll do that again. And I then said, I'm, I'm going to marry Len. Uh, and they said, why are you going to marry Len? And I said, well, because he's wise, he's dependable, he's reliable, and you could go out all night clubbing with Daisy Lowe, come back in at 7 in the morning, he'd still be asleep, and, and, and um, if you made him a cup of tea, you wouldn't even notice. So I'm marrying Len... And that meant I had to avoid Bruno, which I then thought was impossible. So at that point, I became a politician and said, I'm not going to answer your question. <laughs> Good idea. Right, we'll have... If we can have quick questions... That was the longest answer to a question. It was a very long answer. Had a so bad forward event. We'll have one... No, at all. It was very funny. Uh, one sentence question and one sentence answer. And the lady there with glasses. Hello, my name is Rachel. Hi. Um, very interesting hearing you talk. I don't know what your views are on the Lords... But would you ever consider going into the Lords? Good question. We had we had a like a provisional early discussion about it last summer, and I said I didn't want to go to the House of Lords. And um, Yvette was running for leadership of the Labour Party. The last thing she wanted me down the corridor, still being sort of there. I wanted to do other <laughs> things um, in my um, uh, in my life, and it wasn't the right thing for me. I'm not somebody who is is, is against. Um, the House of Lords, I think having a non-elected or partially non-elected second chamber is, is a good thing, or at least, if not, then complicated way of electing. Um, so I'm not against the House of Lords or people being in it, but for me it was the wrong thing to do, and that's what I said. OK. Uh, the lady down the front. Uh, sorry about that, Tim, just get down. OK. Um, hello, my name is Julie. Um, you've talked about friendship in politics. Will you ever be friends with Jeremy Corbyn? Would you ever be friends with Jeremy Corbyn? I could be um, um, friends with Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, you know, we could talk about I mean, cooking, Arsenal. Jam. Uh, jam, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> I don't think, um, I think... I think... I think... I think... I think... Um, that Jeremy has been utterly... I mean, almost um, without exception in politics, he's been utterly consistent in his views, for a very long time. And I have consistently been on the opposite side of pretty much everything he stands for for that whole time. So in that sense, there is really no meeting of, um, of minds. I never wanted to leave the European Union. I never thought we should leave NATO. I don't think we should get rid of nuclear weapons. And I want to kind of work with business to make the economy stronger rather than against them. And um, so we're just, we're just, you know, we are... There was big differences between us. But that doesn't mean that we couldn't be be personal friends, um, and I've got lots of personal friends who are Jeremy Corbyn supporters, but politically, you know, um, we've never been in the, in the same place, and that's why, you know, uh, throughout the time that we were members of Parliament together, over 10 years, I don't think we, we very often were in the same voting lobby. So uh, in that sense, you know, uh, I don't know him very well, and, I don't, and we aren't friends, but um, politically we wouldn't be, but personally we could be. And actually, we've discussed him going on Strictly. <laughs> And he's voting for me, but he's not going on himself. Sorry? That's actually probably the first time he's voted with Discuss. you, actually, on stream. <laughs> Discuss. OK, anyone from this side of the room? Uh, yes, the gentleman there with his hand up. And then is there anyone on the balcony that would like to ask a question? There's a balcony? Oh, my gosh. Oh, yes. There. I didn't see you all up there. It looks quite louche up there. It's, quite, it's kind of like, kind of quite... Quite more I'll tell you that afterwards if you like. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, um, my name's Aidan. Um, 
You mentioned you and um, Ed Miliband uh, debating whether to go back to the 2008 question. At the time and before the 2010 election, was, it a qu was there a decision to acquiesce to issues like the deficit and the causes of the 2008 crash? Because it kind of felt like Labour did acquiesce very quickly. Before 2010 or after? Before. I think... Um, so under Gordon, basically. Yes. Well, there, was, there was a a massive financial crisis, which was the equivalent of a, of a war. I mean, the, the, the economic equivalent of the Second World War in terms of its economic scale and the ramifications and the amount of time it would take to adjust. Um, tax revenues collapsed, um, understandably, um, and therefore the deficit was huge. And it had to be huge, or else the economy would have gone into a depression. The, um, of course, the deficit had to come down, but the discussion which we had was about how long that would take. And, um, and I was always of the view that this would just be a very long and difficult adjustment. You couldn't say to people in the country, we don't think getting the, down, the, the deficit down matters because nobody's going to think that was sensible. But, but how you went about it was um, very important. And whether you came out stronger or weaker as a country and more cohesive, actually during that period, I think Gordon Brown ousted dying through everything they could at trying to sustain growth in the economy, because that was the best way to get the deficit down, and also won a global argument that that was the right thing to do, and persuaded the Americans and the Germans and the French and others to come with us in terms of boosting growth. So I would say in that period, um, there was no acquiescing. In fact, Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling had learned the lessons of 1929, 1930, 31, and were determined that they weren't going to be the guys who stood aside when the world went into a second depression. And actually, it was a massive achievement. History will, um, will recognise Gordon as a prime minister for what he did in the global financial crisis uh, in time as being a, a monumental achievement, which is why around the world he is um, praised, to be honest, far more than he is in this country. There was an internal debate about communication where there were some people who said that we should make a really big thing about cutting public spending. Gordon thought we should make a really big thing about sustaining growth. And there are people like me in the middle, and actually people like me, and I would make common cause actually with Peter Madison and Alistair Darling, saying that we need to show we'll get the deficit down, but um, we also need, we need to kind of be kind of in the balanced middle. But I don't think Gordon did enough at that time to acknowledge the, the deficit reduction issue. But that was, that was a communication political thing rather than about the the substance. There was then, when we were then 2010 to 2015, um, I went out really hard against George Osborne. George Osborne, if you remember, said Alistair Darling was being imprudent by only half in the deficit over five years and then got nowhere near that during his time as Chancellor. Uh, we, um, it's a really long sentence, this. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was quite interesting. <laughs> oh, it's very interesting. Anyway, so no. <laughs> And right at the back, up on the balcony. So, no, no, no. How can you ask a question like that and do a short answer? I mean, you know, God. No, I, I totally agree. Um, That's why your things extent. are so great because <laughs> they substance and. Oh, absolutely. So this is the final question of the so, night. Uh, hi Ed, uh, this is a question from Gordon. Um, the, the... A Scottish <laughs> Gordon. Not that one. Not that one. Oh not my that God. One. From beyond the political grave. No, it's not planned. I can't believe you've <laughs> let me down so badly. <laughs> <laughs> I've not told them about my near-death experience with Gordon. Can I do that? 
Absolutely. Sorry. The animosity from Cameron towards you was, was obvious, and you confirm it in the book. Um, I, I just wonder, as somebody who's experienced the kind of rough edge of politics, when he made his speech the day after the referendum result and the voice cracked, did you feel any sympathy or empathy for him at all? Oh, I think um, you definitely feel um, personal sympathy and empathy because, you know, he had given years of his life and actually with his family as well, living in Downing Street, um, all of the sort of turmoil and goldfish bowl nature of that. And, um, and suddenly, and from his point of view, unexpectedly, they're turfed out. And in anybody's life, suddenly moving, suddenly losing your job, suddenly not succeeding at something is, is kind of destabilising. And how could you as a human being not feel bad about a guy who suddenly has to explain to his kids the next day, I'm really sorry, we're moving house and it's going to happen in the next 24 hours? I mean, that is just a hugely destabilising thing. So on a human level, absolutely uh, empathy. I think politically, uh, I was furious with him because I did not think he should have put himself, his party or the country in that position. And although I understood the pressures on him, I think in the end, in politics, if you're the Prime Minister, you've got to lead. I think in the end, he didn't lead. He didn't lead the European debate in that period, and, um, and, he, got, and he got it wrong. So on a political level, I was cross with him, furious with him. But on a human level, definitely um, uh, empathy. Uh, so, this near-death experience of Gordon Brown. Do you want me to... Well, I mean... Oh, Gordon, that felt... Gordon up there was probably there. We, um, <laughs> so what happened? So we were, we, we, it was about 2003. We were going out to the IMF meetings and the nature of diaries was we had to go on Concord. And um, for those of you um, who've never been on Concord, um, I think we were like one of the... Kind of, I think six months later, the tragedy happened in the Netherlands and it kind of went uh, Concord and finished. But at the time, you, know, you could fly to, from London to New York in three and a half hours. Wow. And it was this really little plane and you it charged down the runway and it went up. And um, planes often do. <laughs> really hard. And, um, and on the front, in front of you, on this really little plane, you're kind of sitting really tight. They have they have a speed thing telling you what Mac you're at. Mac, um, it's sort of like a razor, but speed. Mac something, and um, Mac two, I think, and then Mac three, and then the height. And you fly out really quickly. It goes to fifty six thousand feet. And we were on there, and we were, Gordon's doing some speech about financial regulation or something, and we were talking, me and him and um, the private secretary, and suddenly, they, it was like the plane uh, hit a wall. It was like, it was like, <laughs> with massive judging, and people totally screamed, really loudly. And then the plane started going down, and the counter in front of us went... <laughs> 55,000, 54,000, 53, and you can feel we're going down, and people were screaming, and you sort of thought, oh, my God, what's going on? And then the, 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 um, the guy in charge of the cabin made this announcement where he said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and people went quiet, he said, there has clearly been a major incident. <laughs> oh, my God. And he then God. said... Um, the captain is too busy to speak to you at the moment because he's trying to work out what the major incident is. Oh, my God. And when he, he has more news, he will come back to you. <laughs> and then that was it. And then we kept going down, and it went, um, you know, 49, 48, 
39, 30, so over about 10 minutes, it was just going down. Yeah. And so me and Gordon did have this, this amazing conversation about life, because <laughs> we, we basically thought it was going all the way down. Yeah. And so we talked about family and politics and what you'd achieved. And you genuinely thought you were going to die? Yeah. Oh, no, we, we just, because this thing is going down, 20, you know, 30, 29, it's, so, and, and there'd been no further announcements, so we thought the captain was <laughs> busy on something. And we have this whole, this whole um, conversation about life. We were very calm because it wasn't like it was, you know, kind of really sudden. It was just sort of happening, but it was clear where it was going to end, as we see. And so then we got down to about 21,000 feet. So it's gone from 56 to 21,000 feet. And we sort of talked as much as Gordon and I could about personal things. And there was this silence. <laughs> there was this silence. And then he turned to me and he said... Do you think we should finish the speech? <laughs> <laughs> and I said to him, fuck off! There's no way I am spending the last I ten know. minutes of my life finishing your bloody speech. <laughs> so, okay, fine, fine. And then, that's <laughs> totally true story. And then the plane stabilised at 16,000 yeah. and stopped falling. And they came back on and said that they'd worked it out. There'd been a surge in the engine. One of the engines had blown out, um, but we could carry on. And we sort of limped over to New York and landed. I never went on Concord ever again after that. But um, it was my, you know, it's such a great Gordon Brown moment. Do you think we should finish the speech? <laughs> <laughs> Ed, um, you've been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Um, Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you as always uh, for coming down. Uh, next month, my guest is Paddy Ashdown. Oh, yeah, Paddy Ashdown next month in November. And then in December, we're doing a Christmas special at the Leicester Square Theatre with Ed Balls and some other guests and a band called MP4, uh, who are the house band on Unspun. So there'll be live music, uh, a number of guests from, uh, from the year. And then in January, Jess Phillips, February... Jess Glynn. Not the Jess Glynn, no, no, no. Uh, Margaret Hodge, uh, March... Nicky Morgan, uh, and then some of the guests to be announced for later next year. But ladies and gentlemen, as always, you're a superb audience. Thank you for continually coming down. Please give a huge thank you to the wonderful Ed Balls. Can you send me some news? Have you got some genuine news? Yeah. Coming that way. Oh, shit! I'm going to drop. I'm going to drop. If you stand there, I just put my hand under your leg and... Yeah, go on. No, I'm not. Oh, good. Could you do it? Could I'm you do it? Down. Could I'm you sitting... do it? No. Could you lift me a bit? Oh, do it! Oh, come on, lift me up! Can I say, Katya Jones, Katya Jones is 47 kilos. How much are you? About 100. There's one thing which we can do which is quite That's good. That's genuine. So if you okay. put your hand there, right? Okay. Are you going to lift you... me up a bit? No, no, no I'm yet. What you've got to do is, okay. you've got to push down really hard on your hand. Yeah. And kick one leg forward and one leg back and I'll hold you. Ready? Oh my god! Okay, yeah, go. One, two, three, go. <laughs> well, there you go, Ed Balls. What a top bloke. And uh, it was just such a thrill um, to be a part of that evening, as it is with, with, with all guests. But there, there are particular moments where, of course, I'm interviewing him. Um, and, and this happens, you know, from time to time in the show, is that you also realise that you're sat opposite a significant individual. And I don't mean that in terms of, in, in a frivolous way uh, or, or in a deferential way, but someone that actually 
could potentially have a huge impact on the way that we live our lives. You know, if Ed Balls was ever at the heart of the Labour Party again and was uh, in a future Labour government, which may be some way off, uh, and, and in that interview it sounded like he didn't have the immediate appetite to do that, but you, you're obviously opposite someone who is uh, intellectually blessed and has a real drive. And I think in any walk of life, there's something very impressive about that. Whether you agree with what they say or not, there's something immediately impressive about someone that is blessed with both motivation and intellect and, uh, and actually the ability to be funny with it all. And I think sometimes it is that defeat or it is that um, change in someone's career that brings that out because politicians feel like they have to be on the offensive all the time. And obviously that was something that came out of the interview, you know, the way that he behaved at Prime Minister's questions and obviously felt to some extent duty-bound to, to perform that role. But nevertheless, at times probably didn't, as he said, you know, enjoy the fact that he was doing it. Um, sometimes it is after the event and it's once you've been taken out of that role that you can be more reflective about it and uh, more self-deprecating. And I just thought he was superb. Ed will be joining me at a future show. So the next show is Paddy Ashdown at the end of November. That show is sold out. But as with always with these shows, sometimes on the day there are people that can't make it that have brought tickets. So do check my Twitter feed, at Matt Ford, and get in touch with the venue, the St. James Theatre, because sometimes there are returns on the day, which means that people uh, can go when previously they thought they wouldn't have been able to go. Um, Then there's a Christmas special. A new show has been announced and to fill the void between November and January as if there wasn't anything else going on. But a Christmas special at the Leicester Square Theatre, which is a bigger room, and I'll be joined by Ed Balls and some other guests as well. Plus, I can reveal the house band from Unspun, MP4. Uh, A house band of genuine MPs will be live on stage as part of the show and performing songs. If you haven't seen them before, they are superb. Uh, so Greg Knight on drums, who's a Conservative MP, Pete Wishart on keys, who's uh, an SNP Member of Parliament and also was in Run Rig and Big Country, and the two Labour boys, Kevin Brennan, uh, who's now Shadow Arts Minister, and, and Ian Causey, the former Labour MP for Brig and Gull. And they're absolutely fantastic. If you saw any of Unspun, uh, I'm sure you became huge fans of them because they were hilarious. So I'm delighted that they'll be joining me on, on stage. And I wanted to do something near Christmas as well. Um, just have a bit of a party because we've never really done a, a proper Christmas show. So that's at the Leicester Square Theatre on the 15th of December. I think it's at half nine that night. Um, so it'll be a special festive edition. Um, and Ed Balls will be joining me, some others as well, to be, uh, to be announced in the coming days and weeks. So hopefully see you there. So that's the 15th of December, uh, the Christmas political party at the Leicester Square Theatre. Uh, and then next year we'll be back in the same venue. Uh, I think January, February and March... I think I'm right in saying January and February have sold out and March has almost sold out, but do check the St. James Theatre website and they will be respectively Jess Phillips, Margaret Hodge and Nikki Morgan, uh, all superb uh, guests uh, and can't wait to interview them. And there are some other guests that I'm currently talking to uh, about April, May and June who are very exciting indeed, as indeed all the guests are. Um, As always, thank you very much for downloading this. Uh, For anyone who ever just sends me a message, it means a great deal when people enjoy uh, what is a a real passion project for me. So thank you for your kind comments. Thank you for listening to it and continuing to. And um, yes, with these things, I always feel as if I'm talking to an individual, but obviously I'm not. I'm just stood here with my phone in my hand, um, just talking into a phone. So it always becomes a little bit unprofessional at the end because I don't really know how to sign off 
uh, and I've been doing this for three and a half years, nearly four. Um, so, in closing, thanks and just for, all the best for you and whatever it is you're doing at the moment. You know, you might be on a bus or a, or a train or you might be in the kitchen cooking and have this on. Uh, you might be laid in bed uh, and listening to this. You might be walking down a hill. Uh, and for those of you walking up hills, just, you know, keep on going. Um, I never talked so much rubbish in all my life. So thanks for downloading it and I'll see you soon.